So as I start tonight, we're going to talk about my favorite movie series of all time. Uh, and just as a heads up, I'm going to give you lots and lots of spoilers. So if you have never seen Star Wars and you plan on watching Star Wars, you may want to uh, exit for the next five to six minutes as I give a lot of spoiler alerts. Of all the series movies, this is definitely my favorite. I remember the first time as a young boy being introduced to uh, the main character of Star Wars. It's not Luke, it's Darth Vader. If you've never seen the series, Darth Vader is the main villain of the movie, you could say. But I remember as a very young age seeing Darth Vader step onto the movie screen for the first time as he walks in very powerful, not really knowing anything about him, no weapon that we knew of, no gun, just walking in, and the soldiers kind of standing there, not daring to move, uh, just because of his standing there and looking at the situation. In the very next scene that you see him in the movie, he's holding a man up by the throat. He's asking him questions trying to get some information out of him. The man's feet are just dangling, and eventually you will hear the man's neck break, and he throws him to the side. Just complete and total powerful craziness. And you're like, yeah, that dude's bad, right? And so, of course, the chaos continues through the next several movies. I tell you, I'm giving you, some, I'm giving you a chance to walk out if you want to right quick. <laughs> Terrible acts of violence. He's responsible for killing Obi-Wan Kenobi. If you haven't seen it, I'm sorry. I gave that away for you. He's also responsible for blowing up a planet of one of his prisoners. Uh, and just as another spoiler alert, it just so happens to be his daughter. We won't get into that right now. Um, he will be responsible for torturing Han Solo to get information out of him, which just so happens to be his son-in-law one day. <laughs> a little spoiler alert for you. He's also responsible for chopping off his son's hand, dad of the year, right? So he will actually, uh, towards the end of the, his series in the movie, he will take his son prisoner and he will take him before his boss. And he tells his son, if you don't turn to the dark side, he's going to kill you. This is what you have to do or he's going to kill you. And, and you know, since it's almost Halloween, here's a little... Uh, Information for you according to insider.com. Now, just as a, a side note, it is, they're celebrating uh, Light the Night down the hall. So if you see Darth Vader walk by here in a minute, I didn't put the kids up to it. They're just dressed up like that down the hall. It is one of the number one selling costumes still today of all the Halloween costumes. So anyway, of all of the villains throughout cinematic history, uh, I'm talking Hannibal Lecter, the Joker, the Terminator, Pennywise, the Wicked Witch of the West, Lord Voldemort, Sau Sauron, Jason, Freddy, Michael, all of them. Darth Vader's still number one. He still takes the cake for being the worst of the worst. He rises above the rest and being the biggest villain in cinematic history. I know that's just really great for you, right? However, one of the greatest things to happen in the Star Wars trilogy is they actually took the franchise and they went back. They did some prequels and they decided to show you where Darth Vader started from. So you get to see a young man by the name of Anakin Skywalker being raised up as a Jedi and becoming a Jedi and how he turned to the dark side and how he became Darth Vader, how he became evil. However, at the end of his life in the series, yes, he does die, and sorry to give that away to you if you've not seen it. Um, in Return of the Jedi, which is episode six, his son Luke Skywalker and him have a duel, and he ends up defeating his father. He chops his dad's hand off, son of the year, right? And so Darth Vader's boss, Emperor Palpatine, is able to use the dark side to shoot lightning bolts out of his fingers. Sorry about the spoiler alerts again. And he is killing his son, Luke. He's killing Darth Vader's son. And in this moment, the son is completely helpless. He's crying out to his dad and help for help. And Darth Vader, with just a little bit of humanity still left, 
grabs the emperor, holds him up, and just tosses him down this big, this big hole. And he falls to his death, or so we thought. But we won't get into that either. It's almost like you're cheering for Darth Vader at the end. You keep seeing these little glimpses of hope, these little fragments of good still in him, but he's still evil. But at the end, we see this kind of moment of good in him before he dies. That's what I thought about this last week as I started to prepare for Manasseh. Manasseh is a bad dude. And of all of the kings that we've talked about, of all of the kings that were bad, of all the kings that did evil in the sight of the Lord, Manasseh is going to stand hands, just heads above everyone else. He's a bad dude. And we're going to see some of those bad things that he did. Uh, However, in saying that, we're going to see a very small glimmer of hope towards the end of his life. And we're going to see God do something in his life that will completely turn him around. Will kind of give you some a sense of hope in the midst of darkness, even through all the things that he did in his life. So, how did we get to Manasseh? We've talked about this every week. First of all, we start with Moses, with the people coming out of Egypt, Moses leading the people out of Egypt. He was not their king, but this was the people's first leader, someone who was over the nation. Uh, He was like a general over the nation. He was the lawgiver. God gives him the law. He gives it to the people. So Moses, in a way, kind of acts as a king for the people. Uh, And then as he comes to the end of his life, as the people, God's people, are about to enter into the promised land, uh, Moses is told, you're not going in. You need to equip Joshua. So Joshua's kind of been his right-hand man for a lot of years as they wandered in the wilderness. And so Joshua takes the people into the promised land. We're going to talk a little bit about Joshua tonight. Um, But as we talk about Joshua leading the people in, he is the military general. Yes, he also acts kind of like a king, but he's really the one who is responsible for going in, wiping out the people of the land, the people that God said to get rid of, and to divide the land eventually into the tribes, and you have all the different tribes of Israel being divided up into the land. As Joshua comes to his end of of life, it kind of goes into a period of the judges. And as we go into the judges, you're talking about uh, people who God has sent over certain parts of the tribes of Israel. So they're kind of like tribal leaders within very small portions of the nation. And they go in and... They were very flawed, but they were used by God to give God's message to the people. Some of them were very militarily. They would come in and wipe people out. Some of them were just there to give the truth to the people. So we have a time of the judges. And then that makes way for the last judge, which was Samuel. And Samuel comes in. Samuel is a very godly man. Samuel is a... Samuel would have made a great king. But Samuel was getting old when they were getting ready for a king, and his sons were terrible young men. So the the people said, all right, listen, we know you're coming to the end of your life. You would be great. Your son's not so great. So we need a king. So they end up anointing Saul. Saul is the first king over the nation, a unified nation uh, over the entire nation. Saul was a king that kind of did things the way he wanted to do them, He did not rule the way God would have had him to rule. Uh, And so that makes way for David. David is anointed by Samuel. And Saul is too. But David is anointed by Samuel. And uh, David will be a man after God's own heart. David was not perfect. But he reigned uh, over a unified Israel. As well as his son Solomon. And so we have Saul. We have David. We have Solomon. And Solomon starts really well. He asks God for wisdom. He reigns uh, in a very mighty way. Uh, The nation had peace under him. But towards the end of his life, his wives and the idols that they worshipped kind of infiltrated Samuel and turned, I mean, Solomon, and they turned his heart away from God. And so that will lead us into a time where we see the nation go into a civil war. And we have the northern tribe of Judah who will be led by Rehoboam. The southern, excuse me, the southern tribe of Judah led by Rehoboam. The northern tribe of Israel led by Jeroboam. 
And so that from there, you have the uh, kings that are in the north of Israel, all evil, all the kings of Israel, the northern tribe uh, of Israel, and they're all evil, all of them. And we have the southern tribes uh, where some of them are good and some of them are bad. And so uh, we're going to, the northern tribe where we're at right now, Israel has been taken into captivity. All we have left is the southern uh, kingdom of Judah, and that leads us to Manasseh. Last week we talked about Hezekiah. Hezekiah was a godly king. Hezekiah did what was good in the eyes of the Lord. But tonight we're going to be talking about Manasseh, his son, Manasseh. And so as we talk about Manasseh and as we start talking about how Manasseh ruled, I want you to remember who Hezekiah was, who his father was, the influence that his father had over him. And then we're going to talk about Manasseh. We're going to see how good this is. So uh, first point, Manasseh's mother was uh, Hezebah, meaning my delight is in her. I mentioned his mother because a lot of the kings, uh, you, do, you do hear about their mother. Some of them you don't. And so they thought enough of his mother to mention her in uh, 2 Kings chapter 21. Uh, and so she must have had some type of influence over him. Second point, Manasseh came to power at the age of 12 and reigned 55 years as the king of Judah. My son is almost 10. So to think that a young man around my son's age to be put in power as king at the age of 12. Maybe that's part of the reason why we're going to be in the boat that we're in here in a minute. But we'll get to that in a second. Uh, there are some commentators that say that um, Hezekiah and Manasseh reigned. They kind of co-reigned for a short period of time uh, during the reign. And so... You would say that these two polar opposite kings, and there's kind of a, uh, when he became king at the age of 12, dad may have still been uh, at a, maybe he was at the end of his reign. He knew it was at the end of his reign. He was trying to hand off his reigns to his son. So whether there was a co-reign or not, some, there's disagreement from commentators about that. But uh, when you think about Hezekiah and when you think about Manasseh, these two kings could not be any too far apart. They're polar opposites. And so, and just recalling what Landon said last week, I want to just hit on this again. We are not guaranteed how our children will end up. It doesn't matter how good of an influence you are over your children. You could do everything right, bring them to church every time the doors are open, do, you know, lead them in all the Bible studies, have them memorize scripture. You're, not, you're just not guaranteed how your children will end up. This is living proof. Hezekiah did what was right in the eyes of the Lord. We're going to see that his son will do much evil in the eyes of the Lord. So we're not guaranteed how our children will end up. And so remember last week, 2 Kings 18, Hezekiah trusted in the Lord, the God of Israel, so that there was none like him among all the kings of Judah after him nor among those who were before him. So he's saying Hezekiah was amazing. There was none like him before. There will be none like him after. Manasseh is going to be in that same window except for it's going to be on the other. There's not going to be another evil one like him before or after. And so when you think about those two transitions, the train is about to come off the track. Uh, so much so that Jeremiah writes in Jeremiah 15:4 about the nation of Judah during this reign. I will make them a horror to all the kingdoms of the earth because of what Manasseh, the son of Hezekiah, king of Judah, did in Jerusalem. So that is what we have to look forward to. So buckle up. We're in for a bumpy ride tonight. Uh, last point here, Manasseh's name means causing to forget or to neglect. I put some scriptures from Isaiah. We're not going to read those. You can read those on your own. Uh, this talks about, in Isaiah, Isaiah talks about some priests who had gone to Egypt. And according to Jim Cowie, one of the commentators that I read, says, it may have been one of the reasons why Manasseh believed and acted upon some of the things that we're going to talk about tonight. Uh, they may have influenced Manasseh at a very young age. So some of these priests of the kingdom... 
They kind of go to Egypt and they get some Egyptian influences. And then he says in there, this may be one of the reasons why he gets some of the influences that he does. So um, in the meaning of the name, causing to forget or causing to neglect. I think this is causing to neglect everything that his father built, everything that his father stood for. He's going to completely forget about it. So um, if you have a Bible, open up to 2 Chronicles 33. That's where we're going to be tonight, 2 Chronicles 33. We're going to see some of these things that Hezekiah put into place completely undone. So 2 Chronicles 33. Our first point is Manasseh is responsible for undoing all of the reforms that his father Hezekiah put into place. Undoing all of the reforms. We'll start reading in verse 2. And he, Manasseh, did what was evil in the sight of the Lord, according to the abominations of the nations whom the Lord drove out before the people of Israel. For he rebuilt the high places that his father Hezekiah had broken down. He erected altars to the bells and made Asherah, and worshipped all the host of heaven and served them. So here we see his father, Hezekiah. He was one of the greatest kings to ever reign in Judah. Uh, what he accomplished in his life was nothing short of amazing. And so when we get to Manasseh, it seems like he looks at the nation. Uh, maybe he looked at all of what his father had accomplished. And he says, I'm going to undo it all. I'm going to completely, everything that he worked hard to accomplish, I'm just going to undo it. And don't miss verse 2. It says, he did all of the evils of the people that God drove out of the land to begin with. What my dad destroyed, I'm going to rebuild. What my dad tore down, I'm going to put it back up. Not only will I rebuild it, but I'm going to worship them, I'm going to serve them. Let's continue reading because second point, Manasseh's idol worship was even greater than the people that God drove out of the land. Let's continue reading in verse four. It says, and he built altars in the house of the Lord of which the Lord had said, in Jerusalem shall my name be forever. Don't miss that in verse four. He built altars in the house of the Lord. Verse 5, and he built altars for all the host of heaven in the two courts of the house of the Lord. Even to the angels, I'm going to build these altars. And he burned his sons as an offering in the valley of the son of Hinnom. And he used fortune telling and omens and sorcery and dealt with mediums and with necromancers. He did much evil in the sight of the Lord. He didn't just do evil. He did much evil in the sight of the Lord, provoking him to anger. And the carved image of the idol that he made, he set in the house of God, of which God had said to David and to Solomon, his son, in this house and in Jerusalem, which I have chosen out of all the tribes of Israel, I will put my name forever. And I will no more remove the foot of Israel from the land that I appoint for your fathers, if only they will be careful to do all that I have commanded them, all the laws, all the statutes and the rules given through Moses. Manasseh led Judah and the inhabitants of Jerusalem astray to do more evil than the nations whom the Lord destroyed before the people of Israel. You know, I had the privilege, the great privilege of getting to share with you about two of the previous evil kings, Ahab and Ahaz. Both of these guys were brutal. Both of these guys did a lot of bad things. They both did what was evil in the sight of the Lord. But Manasseh, like Darth Vader, he's going to stand above them all. He's going to take the cake. He's going to win the prize. Um, and so, to me, it seems as if Manasseh saw how his father believed, saw all the things that his father did, Maybe he read in Deuteronomy from the law. Maybe he read in Deuteronomy where it talks about how a king shouldn't live. And he says, I'm going to do all of those things. And he says, I'm going to break them all. 
All the things that God tells me to do, I'm not going to do. All the things that God says not to do, I'm going to do those. And so I did mention a little earlier, earlier that he co-reigned with his father. Uh, you would think that he would have learned something from his father. But maybe he listened to his father and he was like, I don't want to hear this. And we're going to see it come out in his actions. Let's look at some of these things that he did. Verse 4, he built altars in the house of the Lord, in the temple. It's the one thing to have idol worship in the city or in the corners of the nation or in the corners of the city. It's another one to put them in the middle of the temple. And this was where God was supposed to dwell with his people. I mean, could you imagine showing up tonight and there being a big, big statue of Buddha back here, right? Or, or let's go to the real extreme and say that there was a statue of Satan up here. And I said, man, we're going to worship Satan tonight. Maybe I build a big fire next to it. I said, all right, bring the kids down from Awana. We're going to start tossing them in. Uh, I, would be a, I would be afraid for my job, one, but I, hopefully y'all would stop it and throw me in the fire, right? You would think that the people would do that. But that's what Manasseh does. He says, you know what? I'm not just going to build idols around the city. I'm putting them right smack dab in the middle of the temple. And then he starts burning his sons. Verse 6. This is something that we've seen from some of, seen from some of the other kings. But it's detestable to God. Sacrificing your children to a foreign god... Really, they're fertility gods. They wanted to have more children. Think about that. I want you to sacrifice my children so that I can become more fertile. It doesn't make any sense. So, complete evil. He dabbles in sorcery. This is the first king since King Saul to dabble in sorcery. If you want to look that up, it's 1 Samuel 28. It's a great story of how King Saul... Uh, call Samuel back from the dead to ask him a question. You're like, what? Yes, go look it up. It's good stuff. And we won't get into it tonight. But verse 9, he did more evil than the nations that were there before him. All of those people, as Joshua is entering into the promised land, when God says, I want you to take all of these people and wipe them out of the land, they are evil, they worship other gods, and I don't like it. He says, Manasseh does worse than all of those other nations. They worship, he worships idols worse than all the people that God drove out of the land when Joshua comes in to wipe people out. I want you to just let that sink in for a minute. This is the depth to where Manasseh is taking the nation. Uh, this is the direction uh, that he is not only going himself, but he says, you know what, you're all coming with me. We're going to see here in a minute what he does to the people who won't come with him. Uh, so he makes God mad. He makes God really mad. How's, he going, how's God going to respond? Flip over to 2 Keep your spot. We're going to come back to 2 Chronicles. Flip over to 2 Kings 21. Because our next two points are going to be in 2 Kings 21. How will God respond to the anger that has welled up inside of him because of Manasseh? Because our next point is God sends prophets to warn Manasseh of his destruction. You know, God is really good at this. He's going to send a warning. I'm going to tell you what's going to happen because of your disobedience to me. And so 2 Kings 21, let's start reading in verse 10. And the Lord said by his servants, the prophets... Because Manasseh, king of Judah, has committed these abominations and has done, these, uh, done things more evil than all the Amorites did who were before him and has made Judah also to sin with his idols, therefore thus says the Lord, the God of Israel, Behold, I am bringing upon Jerusalem and Judah such disasters that the ears of everyone who hears it will tingle. And I will stretch over Jerusalem the measuring line of Samaria, the plumb line of the house of Ahab, and I will wipe Jerusalem as one wipes a dish, wiping it, turning it upside down, and I will forsake the remnant of my heritage and give them into the hand of their enemies, and they shall become a prey and a spoil to all the enemy, their enemies because 
They have done what is evil in my sight and have provoked me to anger since the day their fathers came out of Egypt, even to this day. <clears throat> so God is going to send a, the messengers to Manasseh. He's sending the prophets to Manasseh. He's going to let them give them the news of what's about to happen. Uh, he's done this with all the kings. Whether they've been good or bad, he sent these prophets to them to give them a message, to deliver them a message. You're kind of going off the tracks. Here's how you get back on the tracks. Well, Manasseh's way over here. He's still going to send the prophets. The fact that God sends prophets to him to give him a message, you know, you would hope that this would be a wake-up call. You would hope that he would take this advice. Um, but think about this. He says, these these prophets show up and they say such disaster is becoming uh, is coming on you and to the nation that for the people who would even hear it, it says their ears will, will tingle it literally means if you translate it, it means they will tremble their whole body will shake you know I've only had a few moments in my life that I could say um, I received such news bad news horrific news that I was left speech, speechless and that's kind of what I get from this verse. The people that would hear it, they would just be like, no. And so it says, for people to even hear it, they would tremble. And God is letting King Manasseh know exactly what's going to happen. This has happened before with the kings. And some of the kings were told, respond well to that response. When they're told, uh, you know, punishment is coming. Some of the kings are like, they repent. They try to do things the right way. Some of the kings go, forget about it. I'm not going to listen to you. Uh, and so how will Manasseh respond? Here's our next point. Manasseh responds by massacring God's prophets and the righteous. Not just God's prophets, but the people who trust in God, who trust in Yahweh. Verse 16, 2 Kings 21, 16. Moreover, Manasseh shed very much innocent blood till he had filled Jerusalem from one end to another, besides the sin that he made Judah to sin, so that they did what was evil in the sight of the Lord. His response is a bloodbath. He sheds, it doesn't just say he shed innocent blood. It says, it doesn't say he shed much innocent blood. It says he shed very much innocent blood. Which prophets that were sent to Manasseh, we don't know. It's, it's unknown uh, in the scriptures. It doesn't say exactly who was sent to him. Isaiah was possibly still alive during the reign of Manasseh. And there are many Jewish traditions, I just have to mention this, many Jewish traditions that speculate that Isaiah would have been martyred during the reign of Manasseh. Uh, many Jewish traditions say that he was actually sawn in two during the reign of Manasseh. Josephus mentioned in his book Antiquities that Manasseh bar barbarously slew all the righteous men who were among the Hebrews. Nor would he spare the prophets, for he every day slew some of them till Jerusalem was overflown with blood. So we think about this. It's a complete and total bloodbath. I know it's hard to imagine this scene. Uh, maybe it's not too hard to imagine. It's Halloween time. Maybe you've been watching scary movies on TV and you're like... But if you can imagine people being killed by the thousands to the point, it says Jerusalem was covered with blood from one end to the other. From one corner of the city to the other, there was blood everywhere. This is how Manasseh will respond to God's warning, to what God said was going to come. He responds with a bloodbath. So back to 2 Chronicles. Flip back over to 2 Chronicles. And all of those things lead us to 2 Chronicles 33.10. It says, The Lord spoke to Manasseh and to his people, but they paid no attention. You know, this is one of the saddest verses in all of Scripture. It's definitely one of the saddest verses that we've read as we've been talking about the kings. God spoke and they paid no attention. It's not just that they disobeyed. It's like, you know, I'm not even going to listen to you. God sends messengers. His response was a bloodbath. So how will God respond? Well, let's check it out. Manasseh is taken captive into Babylon. 
33 verse 11. Therefore, the Lord brought upon them the commanders of the armies of the king of Assyria who captured Manasseh with hooks, bound him with chains of bronze and brought him to Babylon. You know, I looked up pictures of Manasseh this week and I came across this one. I, I love it. Uh, I think it's very fitting. I wish it could have been more accurate. I wish God would have just sent me a picture of how it really went down so that we could get a picture of how he must have looked in this moment. Uh, but this is exactly what God said would happen. Because of your disobedience, because of your idol worship, because you have paid no attention to me, because you have um, made me angry, I'm going to take you captive. And again, verse 11 says, shows us exactly who sent the Assyrians. Don't miss that. Yes, the Assyrians were powerful in the day. You know why they were powerful? Because God wanted them to be powerful. God wanted them to take Manasseh into captivity. He wanted them to take the nation of Israel into captivity. Okay? God brought upon them the commanders of the armies of the king of Assyria. God sent them to take Manasseh captive. There have been many times in my life as I was growing up that I was told, if you do this, if you continue to do this, then this is going to happen. Usually involved a belt. Okay? If you continue to do this, I'm going to whip you with my belt. Uh, I did not like my dad's belt. And my mom and dad were very good about not counting. You know, parents that count kind of make my eye twitch. I, I learned this from my parents. One, two, and the kid usually says two, right? <laughs> Nothing good happens. My parents did not do that with me. They said, if you continue to do this, you're going to get the belt. And then they would just sit back and watch like, he's going to keep doing it. It's going to be bad. What would usually happen is that we knew we were in trouble the second we heard dad's recliner go click and we heard the belt. It was like a sword coming out of a sheath. And we just started running, screaming. We'd start, you would think that he was beating us before he beat us because we would just start screaming, right? And so we knew what would happen. We were told, if you continue to do this, you will get a beating. I say beating because it felt like a beating in those days, I promise you. But if you continue down this path, if you can continue in your stupidity, then you're going to get the belt. And so Manasseh in this moment, here's God, take off his belt, right? And, and he knows that he's in trouble. He knows when Assyria shows up and he's taken captive. And a lot of people say that that is literally what they did with prisoners. They would mock them by, you know, you would not pull a dog around like this, but they did kings to make a mockery of them, put a hook through their nose, drag them around. They're not going anywhere with a hook and a chain around their nose and through their nose. And so this happens to Manasseh. Taking the reign as king at the age of 12 probably made Manasseh feel very invincible. If you think about some of the things, like life cannot do anything to me. I've never met a whole lot of 12-year-olds that weren't, were humble. They're, most of them are cocky. And if you give them that much power, it only gets worse. But you think about his life. He takes away all of his dad's reforms. Nothing happens to him. He sets up idols in the temple, not just around the city, in the temple. Nothing happens. He sacrifices his children. Nothing happens. He killed God's messenger. Messengers. Nothing happens. God sends the Assyrians. And I promise you, it's like dad standing up and taking the belt off. And he knows that punishment is on the way. So what would happen? What would happen next? How would Manasseh respond? <clears throat> Here's the next point. Manasseh humbles himself, seeks God, and is released. Verse 12, when he was in distress, he entreated the favor of, of the Lord his God and humbled himself greatly before the God of his fathers. He prayed to him and God was moved by his entreaty and heard his plea and brought him again to Jerusalem into his kingdom. Then Manasseh knew that the Lord was God. I want you to think about the weight of what Man Manasseh would have felt at this time. As the last line says, he knew 
that the Lord was God. He finally is seeing God for who he really is for the very first time. The Bible does not give us a timeline of when, um, when in Manasseh's 55 years he would have been taken into captivity. But according to this broken cylinder of Asharhadon, it probably would have been around the middle of his reign. So when you think about 55 years, okay, 26, 27, 28 years, complete and total making a mockery of God, building idols around the city, in the temple, killing God's prophets, bloodbath all over the place. And yet in the middle of his reign, he gets taken into captivity. This cylinder, as an Assy- it's an Assyrian monument, gives us a list of kings that were taken captive by the Assyrians. And one of them listed is King Manasseh of Judah. Said, but he gets to go home. Doesn't say that on the cylinder, but God's word does. If you research the Assyrians, if you research the people of that day, they did not allow kings to return home, as Landon has talked about. They kind of kept them as trophies. This is what we do with kings. They're our pets. We keep them as trophies. Look, we have them captive. Yeah, they do what we want them to do, but these kings, they're... We've conquered them. They're here. But here we see King Manasseh is allowed to turn home. We don't know why the Assyrians let him go home. But we do know why. And the why is God. God allowed, God told the Assyrians in whatever way he does that to let Manasseh return home. And so this isn't typical. Wouldn't normally take place like this. A king of a foreign nation that was conquered, taken captive by you, they weren't normally allowed to, to go home. However, I'll say this, the king that was taken captive is not the same king that will be allowed to return home. God has humbled him. He is seeking God for the first time. He is seeing God for who he is for the first time and he's allowed to go home. You know, I remember teaching about King Ahab. And you see in this moment of repentance, Ahab turns from what he's been doing and he repents and God's like, hey, how about Ahab? Look at what he's done. I kind of felt like Ahab was playing a game. Like um, he was only sorry because he got caught. But it says here, Manasseh truly does humble himself. And we know that he truly does humble himself because next point, Manasseh's repentance leads to reform. It leads to a change. The same king that was taken captive is not the same king that returns. Verse 14. Afterwards, he built an outer wall around the city of David, west of Gihon, in the valley. And for the entrance of the, uh, into the fish gate, he carried out around Awful and raised it to a, great, a very great height. He also put commanders of the army in all the fortified cities of Judah... He took away the foreign gods and the idols from the house of the Lord and all the altars that he had built on the mountain of the house of the Lord of the house of the Lord and in Jerusalem he threw them outside of the city. He also restored the altar of the Lord and offered on it sacrifices of peace offering and of thanksgiving and he commanded Judah to serve the Lord the God of Israel. You know Manasseh is going to be very thankful for this second chance that he's been given, for the grace that he has been shown by God. And it comes out in his actions. He wanted to make wrong things right. The things that he had been doing wrong, he wanted to make them right. So he builds up the cities. You know, he just saw the power of the Assyrians. He says, we've got to do something about that. They may come back. We know that they are coming back, right? And so he gets rid of the idols, He starts removing the foreign gods and the idols. Get them out of here. The child sacrifices, those have got to go. Uh, The the temple worship of idols, that's got to go. He turns his worship and his worship of the nation to the one true God, to Yahweh. And so big change that happens not only inside of Manasseh, but within the nation, we see that Manasseh is bringing all sorts of change uh, through his humbling himself Uh, as shown through this change in the nation. So repentance leads to reform. However, Manasseh could not undo all the evil that he had done throughout his life. 
for a lot of people would say this is too little, too late. And in a way, that's kind of true. We do see real authentic change within his life and wanting to do what was right uh, while he still had time. Verse 17, though, says, Nevertheless, the people still sacrificed at the high places, but only to the Lord their God. It's kind of an interesting statement. Uh, I thought about Moses going up on the temple uh, and Moses, uh, when he's up there meeting with, uh, to the top of the mountaintop to meet with God. And while he's up there, they build the golden calf and he comes back down and he's like, what are you doing? And he's like, what? We named it Yahweh. It's okay. That's kind of what I felt like the people are doing here. Well, we're going to offer these sacrifices on the high places, but it's only to God. And he's like, well, you're worshiping the right God, but you're worshiping the right God the wrong way. And so we still see some of the things of the nation, uh, not the way that they should be entirely because of the, uh, the worship, the idol worship that Manasseh had instilled all of those years prior. Verse 18, now the rest of the acts of Manasseh and, and his prayer to his God and the words of the seers and spoke to him in the name of the Lord, the God of Israel. Behold, they are in the chronicles of the kings of Israel and his prayer and how God was moved by his entreaty and all his sins and his faithlessness and the sites of which he built high places and set up ashram, all of that stuff. Verse 20, so Manasseh slept with his fathers and they buried him in his house and Ammon, his son, reigned in his place. So that is a little bit about King Manasseh. So what do we learn from King Manasseh? A lot of good, uh, excuse me, a little good, a lot of bad. So what do we learn from that as his reign of the king of Judah? Number one, you all know this by now. Sin always has consequences. You don't have to look very hard in Manasseh's life to understand that sin has consequences. Uh, one thing I want to point out in this section is that his sin has consequences even long after he tries to make them right. The sin is going to be long foretold and punishment is still coming for his ancestors even after Manasseh has slept with his fathers, even after he is gone, what he had done throughout the nation, punishment was still coming down the road. And so consequences, even though you try to make them right, even though you may humble yourself, punishment still may be coming down the road. And so as I say that this evening, you may be stuck in some sin, okay? Uh, Possibly, uh, as Manasseh was, he was stuck in those sins. Remind yourself, as we've reminded you every single week throughout this King series, sin has consequences. Uh, we may not see them day to day. Manasseh went 20-something years in his sin before God called him out on it, before God started undoing the belt, right? And so your sin may not happen today. It may not happen tomorrow. But we need to understand that sin does have consequences. And we should take it seriously. As Paul reminds us in Galatians chapter 6, I think this is on the screen, says, do not be deceived. God is not mocked. For whatever one sows, that will he will also reap. For the one who sows to his own flesh will from the, his flesh reap corruption. But the one who sows to the Spirit will from the Spirit reap eternal life. This coming from a guy, Paul, like Manasseh, who was responsible for hunting down God's people and for killing God's people. Paul, formerly Saul, was about as evil a guy as you'll find in the New Testament. But he's also responsible for writing about half of the New Testament. And so God can use a guy like that. And God can use a guy like Manasseh towards the end of his life to build reform within the nation. But sin still has consequences. I think one of the Things I've read some different pastors talk about the thorn that was in Paul's side. You know, he talked about a thorn in my side all the time. I think part of that was people were just scared of him because he used to kill Christians. Oh, you say you're a Christ follower now, but look what you did to these guys, right? You were there for Stephen. I think maybe that was part of his, I don't know what it is. It doesn't say in scripture, but Paul gives us, don't be deceived. God is not mocked. God will pour out punishment on those who sin has consequences. So um, his word should be a great reminder to us as well. So sin always has consequences. Number two, real repentance leads to real life change. 
In Matthew chapter 3, you see John the Baptist, um, and he has an interaction with some of the Pharisees um, while he's baptizing people, and these Pharisees start coming up and asking him questions. And John tells them, John the Baptist tells them, that they need to bear fruit in keeping with repentance. And he gets in this argument, and he starts explaining to them. And he goes, listen, I know you say Abraham's your father, and Abraham may be your father by blood, but that's not, that doesn't mean a thing. Just because Abraham by blood was your father doesn't mean a thing. You need to keep with the fruit that, uh, bear fruit that keeps with repentance. In today's terms, it may sound something like this. Okay, Corey, well, I go to church, okay? I go to church. I even go to church on Wednesday night. I'm part of the Wednesday night crowd. You know, not everybody does that. Some of the Wednesday night, I'm there. I'm part of that group. I even tithe. I know you don't see it. We brought it in the box, but I tithe. I tithe some. Um, I got it going on, right? And so sometimes I think we look at our lives and we try to compare us. We try to compare ourselves with everyone else around us, with other people. And so I think that we need to remember that if we truly have given our lives to Jesus, our lives should look different. Going to church isn't going to be different. Going to Wednesday night church isn't going to be... Even if you drop some money in the offering uh, box, that doesn't, isn't what it's talking about. It's talking about real life change. If you truly have repented from your sins and your heart belongs to Jesus, it, your life should be different than it was before you met Jesus. Um, if you look at the difference between Saul and Paul, you look at... Manasseh before he got taken into captivity and Manasseh after he was taken, after he was released. That's the type of change I'm talking about. If you don't look very much different than you did before you met Jesus, you may need to re-examine your life and say, well, is there something that I should look differently? Um, I had a man come into my office this week, this past week, two weeks ago. Last week, I had a man come into my office and he was asking me about, I need to talk to you, son. He was very old. I need to talk to you, son, about uh, what you believe about once saved, always saved. And I was like, oh, here we go. We're going to get into this debate. And so I ended up going into talking to him about, okay, here's what I'm going to say about once saved, always saved. I believe there are a lot of people who don't think that, that, think that they're saved and they're not. Their life really doesn't look any different than anyone else in the world. Uh, and then I, I've, the best way to examine that is by the fruit in your life. When you think about the fruit of the Spirit, love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control, all those good things, right? And you think about your life and does your life exemplify those things? Or as our former youth pastor, Hunter Siegler, used to always end his prayers. He used to always say, God, help us to look more like you when we leave than we did when we walked in. He used to always say that. And I was like, that's a great prayer. Lord, help us to look more like Jesus every day. And that's really the point. When you think about Saul, when you think about Manasseh, they looked more like Jesus at the end of their life than they did before they met him. And that's how our life should be as well. When we think about our lives, when we think about our salvation, we should look more and more like Jesus every single day. The trajectory of our lives, I wish I had the, the graph that Landon put up on the screen one time. He says, you should be more like Jesus. So here's us and here's Jesus. He goes, now sometimes that line looks like this, but the trajectory is looking more and more like Jesus every day. That's what we should examine our lives. Real repentance leads to real life change. And if your life doesn't look any different, I just encourage you to examine your life, whether or not you really do belong to Jesus. Because it should be evident in real life change. Last one, no one is out of the reach of God. I love this one. When you think about Manasseh, it doesn't matter what you have done, it doesn't matter where you have been. It doesn't matter how bad you think you have messed up. Uh, no one is out of the reach of God. A few stories come to my mind. First of all, as I told you, we were going to talk about Joshua, Rahab. When Joshua was heading into the promised land, as God was driving out the people, uh, the, 
the two spies are sent into Jericho. And they said, go in, uh, spy out the Jericho, see how it is. And we see a pagan prostitute by the name of Rahab. And she ends up telling the guys some information that they needed to know. She, allow, she hides them when people come looking for the spies. She actually gives them the way to escape. She lies to the people. All of these things were punishable, punishable by death to Rahab. But she tells them, listen, remember me and my family. They tell her to uh, tie a scarlet thread up in the, on her doorpost when the people, when the nation comes in and says, and we see that she is saved because of that. Because of her faith and because of a divine work of God in her life, she was saved even in the worst of situations. You know, even in the New Testament when Rahab's uh, talked about, it always says Rahab the prostitute. What? You know, and so you're like, man, a, she was bad. No one is out of the reach of God. A second story, we just talked about Paul, Saul. Mentioned to earlier talking about him. He was a man who was hunting down Christians. He was responsible for killing Christians, killing God's people. Yet, yet we know that after meeting God on the road to Damascus, he was changed forever because God had a plan for his life. It doesn't matter what you've done. It doesn't matter where you've been. It doesn't matter how bad you think you, you have messed up. You're not out of the reach of God. And so Paul mentioned in his first letter to Timothy, he says, Jesus came into the world to save sinners of whom I am the foremost. Paul says right there, I'm the worst of the worst. You want to see somewhat beautiful picture of grace? Look at me. I'm the worst that there's been. But after he met Jesus, he was different. And we should be too. Uh, so both Paul and Ray have great stories of that. And that leads us to Matthew chapter 1. And we see that down here in verse 10. And Hezekiah, the father of Manasseh, Manasseh, the father of Amos, Amos, the father of Josiah, whom we're going to talk about next week. And it goes on and it will eventually lead us to Jesus. We see that even Manasseh, evil, saw prophets in half, Manasseh, covering the nation with blood, Manasseh was used by God to bring about his son, Jesus. And it was all a part of God's plan, uh, promise. Also, if you look up in verse 5, ahead of all those kings, we will see that Salmon was the father of Boaz by Rahab. Right there in the lineage of Jesus, we see Rahab. No one is out of the reach of God. It doesn't matter what you think you've done or how bad you think you've messed up. And that is a great reminder for us. It's a great reminder for you if you think you've messed up too bad. It's also a great reminder of you as you walk out the doors of this church and you think, all right, who do I need to share the gospel with? That person is messed up. Well, guess what? God saves people like that. And we should never think that someone is ever out of the reach of God. God can save whoever he wants to, and we need to remember that in our life. So that's a little bit about Manasseh.